Welcome to the Swaplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Madej. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swaplex. Just the boys. Just the boys. Yeah. <laughs> you just asked me when the last time we did this by ourselves was. In person, it was pre-COVID. Wow. I believe it was us comparing Parasite against us. Interesting. The okay. Jordan Peele film. Yeah. Um, we argued a lot. <laughs> Is that going to happen today? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we're, it should be an interesting discussion. We're wiser now. We're calmer. I, you know, us does all, anytime that movie gets brought up, it ends up getting into some sort of fight. Still spike your blood pressure when you hear a it? A little bit. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> I still don't like that movie. I've tried. I just can't do it. But no, I think today should be an interesting conversation because we're talking about one of my favorite pop culture figures of all time one of the like icons of manliness in a way in a way like american hunks he's got to be in the top five like first names that come to mind right i yeah or just like to me american myth level of superstar like elvis is pretty much it's got to be on the mount rushmore but i you know I was really, I've always been fascinated in kind of late career Elvis. When Oh, he, you like sweaty Vegas Elvis? I like sweaty Vegas Elvis. You like Vegas? I do like Vegas, yeah. But just kind of the debauchery and some of the funny stories about, you know, him taking a flight to go get a sandwich and coming back and <laughs> never, but never really explored any of his actual films, which uh, we will do today. Yeah, we're going to talk about cinematic depictions of Elvis and we're also going to talk about Elvis as an actor cuz I don't know it felt like we couldn't talk about the fake version of him without actually looking at what he was like on screen and I had never seen an Elvis movie either yeah and as someone who you know has a coffee table book with Elvis I had never actually watched an Elvis movie so what's the coffee point. table book is it just like like the Time Magazine pictures of Elvis through yeah. the ages? Okay, that's yeah. incredible. <laughs> uh, we talked recently, um, but we've also been alone separately a lot lately. So uh, have you seen anything since the last time we talked of interest? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about Paul Schrader on the last episode we did together yeah. with Cat People. And his newest film, Master Gardener, is on Hulu. So I've watched that because I am also currently reading his pretty famous book on transcendental style which we touched on when we did slow, slow cinema. cinema so i don't know he's kind of been on my mind so i i watched the master gardener and it was one of the most interesting i don't know how to feel about this movie experiences i've had all year where i'm still kind of debating in my head was that good or not um and you know the story is this guy who's you know, the groundskeeper for the, essentially this plantation is told to take on the grandniece who's biracial of the uh, owner of the plantation as his apprentice. And they fall in love and try to give each other salvation. It's very typical Paul Schrader. Um, it starts with a guy writing in his journal, which I think first reformed and card counter yeah. all have the same motif yeah he's got a very particular template he's just plugging in different troubled men into yeah and this one was particularly thorny because spoiler not really uh it's pretty early on in the movie but he's an ex-neo-nazi who 
turned on. He was covered in skinhead tattoos and he actually murdered a black man in front of his family, but then turned on the neo-Nazis and sold them out essentially. And now is in like witness protection. And so he falls for this younger biracial girl. So yeah, the racial politics of it, I think some people were pretty grossed out. Why are you remaking American History X in the 2020s? Did that story need to be told again? Yeah, so that's part of me feel, does feel that way. I'm like, oh man, we I don't think we need this. But another part of me really loved the images of the flowers and a lot of the metaphorical stuff with tending to a garden and history and you know the racial politics going on in the film. I thought there was something really interesting there, but uh, I, I just don't know. I really don't know if it's a good movie or not. And I know that's a terrible thing uh, on a film podcast right. to say, but I truly don't know how to feel about it. Not the last time we'll be saying that on this episode, because there's a movie that's like one of our centerpiece discussion topics that I don't know how to feel about it. And I've seen it three times. Wow. Yeah. If it's the one I'm thinking of, <laughs> wow, that's like 10 hours of right. whew, contemplation. Don't know what to feel about that either. When yeah. you say the the metaphor about the gardening and something beautiful coming out of it, are you talking about like the plantation being like ugly history and like him making it beautiful again? It's kind of like that. And That's pretty heavy handed. Yeah, it is heavy handed, but the cinematography is beautiful. It's got a really awesome score. Uh, I think it's by Debonte Hines. So there were things to like about it. Uh, but there were things that I thought were really misguided too. So I, I would be kind of curious if some other people watched it and what they thought about it. But you were you were talking about before we started recording about late style. Yeah, he's in his late style. I think this right is now. a late style. Yeah. yeah. I I really loved First Reform, but every card counter and this one were both very much like, I don't really know what this guy is doing, but I think it's interesting. And I still like want to see his movies, but uh, yeah, this this one was a little tricky. He's in a rhythm right now where like I feel like I've seen this even though I haven't. Like I because I've seen First Reformed, I kind of get the template. I could just imagine it applied to a different subject, and uh, you know, I feel like I've seen it without watching it, which is not a great way to like approach movies. I should probably be more open minded than that. But you're not wrong. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're not wrong at all. Um, they do form a nice trilogy, though. But um, so, anyway, what have you been watching, Brandon? Award screeners, like screeners. Yeah. Every minute, I'll start one, and then by the time the movie's over, there's like three more emails in my inbox, like screen this now. And there, there's been some good stuff, and I probably should weigh in on like the big ticket items of the season right now. But yeah, I want to recommend something to you because of something we just talked about last episode again. Uh, you were talking about how your tastes have gotten more appreciative of like mainstream straightforward filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And like my favorite thing I've seen from this, like awards FYC ritual um, has been this movie called the taste of things. Mm. Uh, I think the French title is pot of foo. I don't think it actually gets an American release until February of next year. I haven't even heard of that. It will be the French submission for the best foreign language Oscar instead of anatomy of a fall, which a lot of people were like, up in arms about because anatomy of a fall is a very like artsy serious drama mm -hmm. uh, that like plays with form and like with your perception of truth yeah <laughs> and like how subjective that is 
the taste of things is a crowd pleaser and it's just very warm and cozy. So like there's like a knee jerk reaction where it's like, why are you like brushing aside art for something that's just like Mm -hmm. a commercial film? And I can report having seen both of those that I vastly prefer the taste of things. Really? I'm going for the crowd pleaser in this uh, divide. Oh, cool. It is set in, I believe, early 20th century, maybe late 19th century kitchens um, before restaurants were a business and restaurants were just like homes that different like culinary nerds would go to and try delicious meals from like chefs. And I want to say the first 20 or 30 minutes of the movie is Juliette Binoche in a kitchen cooking the most extravagant, delicious meal you've ever seen with this like handheld pornographic detail where like the camera is just like in every pot focusing Mm. on her hands, like kneading dough and like, like deboning fish, Uh, just things going into ovens. And the kitchen is so it's like a provincial French kitchen and it's so sunlit. Like everything is warm, honey lighting and like, Mm. That just sounds nice. It's so nice. (laughs) The main drama of the film is like, she's been cooking in this kitchen for 20 years. And like the master of the house is deeply in love with her. He's described in the movie as the Napoleon of gastronomy. Like he's like really knowledgeable about food and like Hmm. gets a lot of credit for having like conquered the culinary arts. But she is like the actual brains. Um, But I guess because she's a woman behind the scenes and not like a landed gentry mm-hmm. restaurateur. Like she doesn't get as much credit outside the house in the house though. He knows that she's the genius and like worships the ground she walks on. And every day is like, when will you marry me? I am so in love with you. Oh, and she's like, no, I'm your cook. I'm not your wife. Uh, and she doesn't mean that as like, I'm your servant. It's like, I'm doing more to communicate with you through the food I cook than I ever could through traditional lovemaking hmm. not that they don't have sex they have sex i mean it's a french film <laughs> but so it's this like really tender warm love story about like yearning and these two people collaborating on these beautiful dishes of food uh it gets more dramatic from there there's like life events they go through and struggle with together because they're not young you know like yeah, things happen it just sounds like a, a nice warm warm piece of pie i smiled the whole time i cried a little bit during like the more melodramatic moments. It just hit in the right way. Um, yeah. It reminded me of what we were talking about with Tampopo, just like a really like respectful, reverent movie about the process of preparing food and like balancing a well-made mm. thoughtful meal. But it's not as experimental and playful with form. It's like a pretty straightforward, like you could take your grandma to, to see this kind of movie um, as long as she's okay reading subtitles. That's, I mean, that sounds excellent. I really it's want great. to see. So that's in the screeners? Yeah, that's in um, my emails. <laughs> but, gotcha, uh, gotcha. It will be in cinemas, I think, in February. Okay. I really don't like this whole award season thing. It's like the timing of it's funny to me where they want people to put it on their best of the year lists, but they're not actually going to release it to the public till the next calendar year. Well, for something like this, it seems to be a crowd pleaser seems like it would go the other way where you would release it word of mouth would kind of carry it through to award season. And I guess the ploy there is that you want it to be nominated for an Oscar. 
And so it'll come out in theaters in the lead up to the Oscars. And like, that will be its publicity. I see. It's like, oh, I should go see the French film that was nominated for best foreign language picture this year. Yeah. Or non-English language picture. I'm not sure how they, they reworded the title of that award recently. That, I mean, that does make some sense. It's tricky economics though. And the way we do our best of the year list, like I'm not going to include it on this year's cause it's not out. Yeah. Like I'm going to save it for next year. So I have to like, sit with this uh for 12 <laughs> months now probably have to revisit it again gladly gladly yeah i'll make y'all watch it for okay something. i really want to see that yeah and i think we're talking about very commercial filmmaking for the rest of this episode i mean elvis is one of the more popular american icons as you were saying earlier mm-hmm. nothing too artsy fartsy today you know pretty over the plate i think well we, we could talk about it a little bit one example maybe one, one example yeah. <laughs> really swinging for the fences that's true and all that's coming up to you right now. There's a man in New Orleans, he's a rock and roll, he's a guitar man with a great big soul. He lays down the beat like a ton of cola. He goes by the name of King Creole, you know he's gone, 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 jumping like catfish on a pole. Gone, 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 out of hip-shaking King Creole. King Creole. The king starts to do it, it's as good as done. He holds his skin to like a dummy gun. He starts to growl without any throat. He bends a string and that's all she wrote. You know, he's gone, gone, gone. Jumping like a catfish on a pole. He's gone, 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 out of hip-shaking King Creole. He sings a song about a crowded hole. He sings a song about a jelly roll. He sings a song about a pork and greens. He sings some blues about a New Orleans. Go, 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 jumping like a cat. I'm kind of hijacking your episode pitch here. Because I made us watch King Creole from 1958, which was not on your original list. But I, I'm glad that you did that because my original idea was just to talk about Priscilla and Elvis. Yeah. Which will be a very good discussion, I hope. But again, neither of us had seen any of his actual movies. So we, I don't know. It just felt like wrong to not uh, at least watch one. And I think you picked a pretty good one. I picked it because it is well-reviewed. I'd say this one, Viva Las Vegas and Jailhouse Rock are the three people single out as his best work. But King Creole is set in New Orleans, so it seemed like a pretty natural fit for the show. I'm trying to get those SEO numbers up. You know, I want to be a Nolans, y'all. Hey, that's Uh, why I picked Cat People for the last episode, and we got to keep working New Orleans in. Yeah, this is actually filmed... On site, too. It was actually filmed on location in the French Quarter. A lot of early morning shots of the like wet streets as like the city's waking up. It's, yeah, beautiful black and white yeah. cinematography. Um, directed by Michael Curtiz, who did Mildred Pierce, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And Casablanca, and Casablanca which yeah. is, you know, a standard classic. Um, this is like a late 50s noir from major studio, so it's a little sweaty. Like... The reason we like those early noirs, like when we were talking about Detour earlier this year, is we like how quick paced and like entertaining and rapid and like dirty mm-hmm. and fast. And, you know, this is a little bit of that. 
Is it? I feel like it's a little drawn out. It's it's like a noir musical. It's a full two hours. Yeah. There are a lot of musical numbers in the nightclub where Elvis gets to sing directly to the camera, which I guess is what you want out of an Elvis picture. Yeah, I guess I was t- just touching on the fact that this movie was way kind of darker than I was expecting from an Elvis movie. I mean, you've got like prostitutes and uh, gangsters and robberies going on and you know, acts of violence. Like I just was not expecting that from this period of Elvis. But yeah, the film isn't like, it's not a quick watch. It doesn't feel fast. Like a lot of really good noirs do. Yeah. Even like for a musical, I don't know. I feel like by the time you get to the 1960s, that's when they're a little bloated. Um, It's not like the best time for either of those genres, but it's kind of interesting to see them cross over like this especially with such a like unique location. Yeah. And I did. I mean, I liked seeing the old like French quarter of 70 years ago. And I liked too, that they really got into like the criminal element. Yeah. Which is still there. (laughs) So, uh, Walter Matthau, a young strapping Walter Matthau plays a, uh, French quarter gangster who owns multiple clubs and like, all the money being made around Bourbon Street like flows upwards towards him in one way or another. Um, Elvis plays a teenage delinquent who um, is missing a lot of class to work in these nightclubs um, and eventually becomes a headlining star as a singer-songwriter, basically by everyone else's insistence. He's not like a musician by heart. It's people who are like, oh, you should get up on the stage and sing, kid. Yeah, his attitude in this movie, it's the same with the... He has two romantic interests and his attitude towards both of them is like, I mean, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> well, I think it's because women are throwing themselves at him in every scene because he's like the most beautiful boy on earth. Right. <laughs> but he just has this like apathetic uh, attitude towards yeah. it all, which I guess is like he's essentially playing like a James Dean in here. Um, Very rebel without a cause. Uh, and actually, the movie was pitched as a James Dean film. And James Dean died before it went into production. So Elvis took the role. Uh, from what it seems like, this is like what he wanted to do. Maybe that's why this is a good pick as well. Is like, this is the career he wanted was to be James Dean or Marlon Brando or like a serious actor like that. Instead of the teen heartthrob that his manager kept pushing him into. Which the other two films <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about. Talk about that aspect about right. him wanting to get into more serious role. I, you know, I, I will say as like a screen presence, I mean, he's Elvis. I mean, he yeah. does have a draw to him and I think he's a decent actor. Like I think he could, had he like worked at it more and gotten more of those serious roles. Like I think he could have crossed over. Yeah. I think that's what he saw for himself. It wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to instantly be as great as James Dean. It was like, I want to go to acting class and train up to be as good as James Dean. Well, and a lot of why this movie works is because you have like Walter Matthau, you have like established actors around him and you have a very competent director. So like the nuts and bolts of the movie are solid and he doesn't do anything to screw it up. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, not much really happens in it. Maybe that's why I'm saying it's a little bloated is like, the two women he's interested in, one is Walter Matthau's mall, like his like girlfriend who wants out of the game. She wants out of the, like the criminal circuit that Walter Matthau runs. Um, and Elvis kind of wants in 
a little bit. Like he wants to make money to support himself because his dad is flat broke and owes debts all around town. Mm -hmm. And his other love interest is this very sweet, like soda shop department store counter girl who like has never had sex before, but is just mesmerized by him. Like every other woman who ever lays eyes on him and is willing to cross a few moral boundaries to be with this beautiful young delinquent. So I don't know what order you watch these films in, but having like seen Priscilla, I couldn't help but think like the way he was sort of, I don't know, kind of stringing her along and like, Oh, it's not the right, right time. You know, we got to wait. I'm not there yet. Like that is talked about a lot in the Priscilla movie. And just the way he is to her in this flick while also like making out with this older woman who is more sexually experienced, something about that rang very true to who he actually seemed to be as a person or who he became later too, right? Like this was filmed right before he served in the army. He got served his papers like early in the production process and the studio argued like, Oh, we're going to lose a lot of money if we can't finish this project. And like, the military delayed his service so that he could film this movie. So this is before he met Priscilla Presley. Mm-hmm. This is before he served and came back and had to like rebuild his career in America. Um, so this is still like classic period Elvis, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it is a little funny that he grew into that dynamic more as he got into, as he grew into like manhood later in his career in life. But I, I think this is a pretty good snapshot of like all the promise of what he could have been. And then also kind of the tail end of his like jailhouse rock teen heartthrob mm-hmm. era. This is like him trying to mature a little bit. And it seems like it was cut off pretty abruptly after this. Yeah. Cause like I said, it, the, the film, you know, I agree. It's a little bloated and maybe not the best um, Presley. I, I don't know, but it's a de- it's a decent watch. I like, think it's good. It's good. And like he did have promise in acting. It is strange the way that his career ended up yeah but yeah he had that star quality that could have crossed over into becoming a big movie star i just don't really know what happens in the last hour of this movie really like he earns his way to the top of the like bourbon street circuit to the point where the strippers are mad at him because more girls are showing up at the strip club and don't want to see <laughs> naked women yeah. uh, they want to see elvis and from there it's like only a matter of time before his sort of uneasy professional relationship with Walter Matthau explodes. And we're just kind of waiting for it to happen. But yeah. And then there's this subplot of they beat up his dad to steal the money. And they use that as blackmail for Elvis to stay. The plot sort of goes off the rails right. a little bit, but you know, once, once Walter Matthau goes full nuts and he's yeah. chasing people around and beating up Elvis with a chair. And, and I, I kind of liked the, really melodramatic ending yeah. of this too. So yeah, ultimately it, it worked for me, but it's a little messy. I mean, basically they're just buying time for places to plug songs into and the songs are good. I mean, most of them are about new Orleans, which is fun for us. Like mm-hmm. uh, early on, I think in the very first scene, it's like a, a city waking up to different gumbo. street vendors, like <laughs> singing about their wares. They're singing about gumbo and crawfish. And then Elvis starts singing back to them. It's kind of like Mr. Ochre, the musical for the first like few minutes of the movie. Yeah, I would I mean, this is definitely one of the best portrayals of New Orleans that I've, yeah. I mean, the the city really is like center stage 
in a lot of this, which as someone that lives here, just being able to recognize different buildings, you know, I always get a kick out of that. Yeah. And it, it does capture to the like the grimy seediness of the French Quarter, you know, early morning hours. Yeah, uh, one of the very first scenes is him getting into a tussle with a bunch of gangsters who have not gone to bed from the previous night. So he he's waking up doing like busboy duties before he goes to school, and they're still drunk from the night before, uh, which is pretty. Uh, I mean, indicative of the city not behaving correctly. <laughs> also, what what the standards for graduating must have really gone down because he's just late one time on his final day and that's enough to <laughs> fail him for the whole year yeah i was like that's bullshit he's got to repeat the whole grade a second time because he's already 19 yeah like when you want guy- him out of there <laughs> <laughs> yeah here's another thing i just read this book called san francisco noir uh when i was in san francisco i bought it it was like kind of a tour guide of the city told through its representations on screen so like there would be like a location that you should go to to see to see the city mm-hmm. and then also the movie it was featured in cuz there's just like hundreds of noir films set in San Francisco and i was just wondering like watching this why aren't there more new orleans noir films like the city's just as well suited for it i guess it's further away from la and like it used to be less frequent for bigger productions to go film a location elsewhere i think about that every time i watch a noir yeah i'm like New Orleans is perfect for like the old, the architecture, the kind of seedy criminal element, the debauchery, but also just like, just the streets and the shadows. You know, I really wish there were more noir set here. I can name a few. There's a couple. In the 80s, there was stuff like, I guess Cat People's Close, but I was thinking of um, Angel Heart. It's kind of like a supernatural noir. There was one... I watched kind of recently where there's like a pandemic. Uh, Panic in the Streets. Panic in the Streets. Uh, by Elliot Kazan. Yeah. And that was remarkable for shooting here and including a lot of locals in the cast. So like a lot of the non-main players in that movie are like people that were just drinking Dixie beer at the bar anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think King Creole has that feel to it. It's not realistic cinema, you know? It's not like grimy... It's not detour. <laughs> you know, no, like, no. It it is a little more polished and like major studio melodrama, like you were saying earlier. Well, but... and and again, the the point is the songs and right. see Elvis perform. Yeah, I guess that's the musical half of it. But the again, the songs were really good. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot too. Yeah. The edge of reality. Taking Lisa with me. Uh, Scylla, is this about what happens on the road? About the what? 
Is this about what happens on the road? The you girls. Know. You think I yeah. give a shit about the girls Maybe that you sneak you into the side door? No. I couldn't care less about whoever it is you sneak through the side door. It's about this, Elvis. And this. Hey, whoa. And these hey. goddamn pills, those leeches and hatchets feed down your God throat. Like you're strung out. Strung out. Goddamn. I'm in the best shape of my life. Best shape of your life. The only time you're happy is so when you're I... on that stage. And in between that, you're a ghost. So I give you everything you could want. What I want is a husband. I am your wife. I am your wife. So, Brandon, I guess first off, how do you feel about Elvis? The man, the myth, the legend, the movie? Let's start with the myth. The man, does the Elvis Amer- like his mythology mean anything to you? I can very clearly say no. It means nothing to me. Okay. And what about as a man, do you find him Interesting. I mean, I think a lot less of him now that I've seen what he was like in private. <laughs> I will say, same. I after uh, watching Priscilla, I was like, oh, damn. All Which right. is not new information. Like that biography that Sofia Coppola based Priscilla off of came out in the eighties. Yeah, I've had ample. I've had my entire life to catch up with that book and have had no interest up until now. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, you know, like modern pop stars and everything. They're in the limelight so much, like every little detail of their personal life. But I feel like there was a time where you could be the biggest star on the planet and get away with shit. And as long as you like passed away, you know, at a certain time you could be mythologized and people aren't going to like bring up your personal stuff. And that's sort of what the first movie we're going to talk about Elvis directed by Boz Lerman. I think it sort of leans into that the Elvis as the myth because he doesn't feel like a real person in this Elvis movie. No, this is very clearly a superhero origin story uh, and is like explicitly told in those terms with like comic book panels and like the word superhero is said like several times. Yeah. And it's shot as if it's just one big long movie trailer. Oh my God. It's this, this movie is exhausting. First of all, I mean the two and a half hour runtime feels so much longer when there's like five different camera angles of the same shot, hyper editing, crazy zooms and swoops. And it's the most individual camera setups I've seen outside of like Russ Meyer films. It never settles on one image for it is more than wild. a second. Did you see this in the theaters? I did. Whew. And I walked out completely in a daze, <laughs> not knowing what I thought about it until I heard this woman in the lobby be like, that was the worst movie I've ever seen. And then and you were like, I, you know what? It had some merits, you know, like, <laughs> but before she said that, I was completely neutral. And I think I think I still kind of am. I'm like impressed by the audacity of Boz Lerman just like throwing every idea at the screen without yeah. any editing whatsoever. Yeah, that, that's what I admired about it, too, was like, wow, he really like went for the fences from the get-go. I mean, I have issues with the Tom Hanks Colonel character being such a focal point. The movie is basically more about him than it's about Elvis. He like narrates it himself in this terrible fake Dutch accent. I just can't for the life of me figure out why they went with that choice. A lot of people say the drugs are what killed Elvis. Other people (laughs) say it was me. But I think it was love that killed Elvis. His love for you, the fans. Like, gotta be one of the most embarrassing performances from any celebrity I've ever seen in a movie. It's a really bad performance, right? Aggressively awful. And yet there are like people who defend it 
I don't know if it's like irony poison Twitter commentary that I'm like reacting to here, mm-hmm. but like this was a lot of people's favorite movie last year. And it premiered at Cannes to, I think, divisive reviews, but the people who love it really love it. And they, they there's an account that tweets one frame from Elvis every day, and I see people reposting it all the time. Like Interesting. It's been, it's been picked apart as like one of the great movies of the last few years. I do not have that confidence in my estimation of it. So they liked the Colonel character being, I, I just... I guess it's like a appreciation of not caring that it's tacky. You know, it's like Elvis is kind of tacky, especially in that like sweaty um, 70s Vegas period that you're referencing earlier. It's like a movie about him should also be a little sweaty and tacky, I guess. And, and that to me is where the film could almost be considered like a great film because it captures 70s Vegas Elvis like on steroids and that is the tone of the entire piece. I guess my problem is like for most of the runtime, and it's a very long runtime, I'm just like, what are we doing here? Like a swoop in on the Starship Enterprise on like a Vegas billboard that then shoots off into space off of the billboard. <laughs> that has nothing to do with Elvis. It has nothing to do with the story or the tone or I, anything. I mean, I hate to say it, it. This film seems more about Baz Luhrmann. Yeah, yeah. Showing off his like directorial tricks than I think it is a celebration of Elvis. And I like exactly one movie from him a lot. Like I love Strictly Strictly Ballroom. Ballroom. Everything since then, I'm just like, why can't he recapture that magic? I think it's the same. Like like you're saying people that like Elvis really like the movie. People that are into Boz Lerman fucking love Boz Lerman. I've never quite figured it out. It's just not really for me but it's baffling i feel the same way about moulin rouge like the sort of like tacky cheesy versions of good songs that are in that movie like it's like why am i not just listening to the real tracks it's, i don't know there's something like deeply corny about him but it's so unashamed i think that's what people like about it yeah and i kind of again i have the same experience with you with this movie but there are moments where i sort of got it i was like man this is just gleefully unhinged like when there would be like needle drops in the movie of like songs that are out now oh yeah like i was like whoa that's a choice or like mixing you ain't nothing but a hound dog with like modern rap so that like yeah there's like a hip-hop connection to it i was like what but he has no confidence that you can make the connections yourself it's like you have to see at the end a progression of the blues Elvis was overhearing as a child in Memphis and then overhearing the tent revival gospel stuff. And then the Beale street plugged in electric version of that blues. And then his, but we like, saw it. I just of that. sat through the whole movie. Yeah, it's like, he doesn't trust you to make those connections yourself. Every scene is like so thuddingly obvious and like basically pummeling your brain with like very obvious information. Well, and to contrast that with, the other film we want to talk about, Priscilla. Yeah. I think Priscilla is fantastic because it does exactly the opposite. Yeah, this is one of those episodes that or one of those like pairings that like really challenges my lens that I view everything with. Like usually I'm like, fuck subtlety. I don't like restraint. Like, what are we doing here? Let's get to the goods, you know? Yeah. And this is the exact pairing that like makes me feel like such a hypocrite where I'm like, I really like the slow, quiet reflective movie versus the like over the top kitsch fest. Well, and especially cause you know, Priscilla is Priscilla Presley's story, 
but Elvis is looming literally he's like eight feet tall (laughs) (laughs) looming over the whole thing but it's a cryptid I thought the performance was beautiful of just really quiet isolation and sadness and her just being an outsider and she has very few lines actually in this movie even though it's about her it's more facial expressions and just little mannerisms she makes where you know what's going on in her head and what she's thinking and that subtlety is why I liked it like why I was enraptured with it as opposed to like I said Elvis where it's just throwing it in your face like here's what it is uh I I like this approach which I guess both movies are approaching their subject with the same consideration and form right so like Elvis is gaudy and over the top at least by the end of his life he was and he was like aggressively corny and like he kind of lost the thread of like what was tasteful in art and priscilla was quiet domestic lonely and bored lonely and bored yeah and the movie's about how isolating it is to be married to someone who doesn't pay attention to you 90 percent of the time but wants you always to be there waiting for them like a dog yeah like there's a scene where she wants to go get a job and he's like well you can't do both you can't have a career and be Married to Elvis. Yeah. So, yeah, while he's running around philandering, going on tours, she's expected to just, as they say in the movie, keep the home fires burning. That's bullshit. Which is bullshit. <laughs> no. And it, like, there is no fire. Like, she's a doll or an appliance. Like, he dresses her a certain way. He wants her to just, like, be preserved in time so that when he wants, when he comes home, he can, like, snuggle with her, not have sex, even though she's very horny for him because he's, like, the most beautiful boy in the world. <laughs> like, it's just to be an accessory in Graceland. It's like it's like she's a, another pink convertible, yeah. not, like, a partner in which romance. Is, which is sad. Yeah. And, and the movie is very somber where you're sort of watching this relationship dissolve where in the beginning, oh, my God, Elvis is into me? Like, like I'll do anything. for I'll fly over to Memphis from Europe. I just want to be with him and how over time his coldness to her, it just slowly chips away at that desire where by the end, the triumphant thing for her to do is like, I'm out dude. Right. And it's kind of a non ending. I think like it's a very slow tapering off of what the movie is like early in the picture. Elvis is on the military base, like serving his time, quote unquote, he's basically throwing parties like just outside of like people who are actually like involved in the barracks. And they, they do not shy away from the age different. No. And I thought it was incredibly strange. The courting process of some random guy approaching like, Hey, you want to come to Elvis's party? I'll be your chaperone. And she's 14, 14 years old and looks it. The mm. actor's name is Kaylee Spaney. She's in her twenties, but she's a very convincing 14 year old in this scene. And Jacob Alordi playing Elvis is like a full, like, foot and a half taller than her and looks insane next to her. Like he's like <laughs> yeah. towering over her. And so he purchases her, moves her to Graceland, dresses her up. And she's just like so isolated and feels like she's on an alien planet. Every time she reaches out to somebody like to try to make a connection, it's immediately shut down by his dad slash business manager. And she is like, that's not your job to connect to anybody but Elvis. Like, or even if still. she's like on the property, just playing with the dog in the front yeah. yard. It's like, no, you can't be out here. You're making a spectacle right. of it. It's like, so I got to sit inside all day and wait for him to come home. And then in the end, 
all that really happens is she grows up into an adult and like stops seeing what she's getting out of the scenario. Like she's not a teenager who's married to her idol anymore. She's like becoming a real fully formed person. So she just kind of drifts away from him and like starts living her own separate life. And the movie just kind of like tapers off with her and just sort of leaves Graceland with her eventually. But like, it's not a big dramatic moment. It's like this like gradual untangling. So it's like, it's not a very like dramatically satisfying movie in the way that like the Baz Luhrmann Elvis biopic is like following almost like the walk hard stations of the cross. Like it's like, (laughs) these are the beats you have to hit in a biopic. It's a little weird that it's narrated by a fake Dutchman in a fat suit, but (laughs) stick with that. We're going to give you the, like the rise and fall glamor and pills, uh, rock and roll story. And then um, it ends with like a tragedy because you know, that's the real life story. The Sofia Coppola movie is a lot calmer than that. And I think that's her kind of like Boz Lerman, like playing the hits from early in her career. Like this is very virgin suicides mm-hmm. and it's like isolation of a teenage girl who's horny and being kept inside um, and not able to like fully become a person until she like goes insane. And then also, um, Marie Antoinette, which is like also one of her great films about like just sort of how surreal it is to be in the middle of opulence, but still feel lonely and not have anything you actually need emotionally. You just have all this like material goods that don't mean anything after a while. Well, and that tapering off, I thought was beautiful in a way because it it's how most I think relationships actually do end. It's not a big dramatic blow up. I mean, sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's just like a slowly, like you said, disentangling from another person. You're like, yeah. oh, wait, I want to have my own life separate from you. That doesn't necessarily make great art, though, even if it's true to life, right? I think it makes great art in this film. It does in this in this instance. I'll agree but with not, that. But not necessarily. I mean, yeah, you go to the movies for that little something extra that you don't have in your life. I already referenced this, but um, I was talking last episode about like the crew of rolling Elvi going to see this in Elvis costume, like watching Priscilla at the Britannia. Can you imagine like just the slow dissolution of that marriage, the scenes of him being like a pretty classic abuser where he's like, so I'd never do anything to really hurt you, baby. And like, she's, she's pretty mature for her age and stuff like that. Like he's a pretty like standard stock abusive partner in this movie. And then the like hero's journey, I guess, is her like becoming her own person and drifting away from him slowly. It's not like a super satisfying, feel good liberation moment at the end. It's just kind of like, well, that's life, you know. Uh, I'm glad she made it out intact. Yeah, I mean, and knowing that she went and had her own career and got remarried and led a pretty happy life, knowing that kind of added some color to. But the film itself is pretty like dour. There are some moments of some humor, but and uh, immense beauty too. Like, yeah, it's it's really. I mean, again, it's very lonely. But just watching her sit in this opulence, like you said, in Graceland, this sort of palace that he constructed, and just sitting there totally alone. Yeah, with like beautiful furniture and all the amenities, but nobody to share it with. It just made you feel uh, just really sad for. Priscilla, yeah. I don't want to make it sound like slow cinema, though. This isn't like Jean Dielman or anything like that. It, honestly, it's almost cut 
a little bit like the Baz Luhrmann film in that it is almost like a nonstop montage in some ways. There's tons of like anachronistic pop music because Sofia Coppola could not get the rights to Elvis songs. The movie's better for it, I think. Oh, uh, when that Dan Deacon that is the best song moment of the whole dropped, movie. I'm yeah. like, hell yeah. That's where the humor is. Is like Elvis has this like gang of like idiot cousins and like yes men. I couldn't imagine like having to live because they just <laughs> live there on the property and they're constantly just fucking around. They have no job but to get drunk and shoot things. <laughs> so <laughs> which, funny. Which is probably fun for them. Yeah. But for her, like. And again, her performance is so great because she's just watching them hanging out. But you could tell she's like, God damn, I got to hang out with these assholes again. <laughs> but that sequence where they like are getting drunk and playing bumper cars and like Look, the Dan Deacon like crystal cat needle yeah. drop kicks in. Like I was like, this is as good as movies get like this moment right here. Well, I, I think too, like we were talking about the slow dissolution of the relationship. Like it's not a like steady decline throughout it's like again what i think probably was the case is that she did still love him and so you have pockets of when they have these like really tender moments or where their relationship is like okay for the time being and then he does something awful or abusive and she's like drifting further away and then he you know it's that constant like pushing away come back to me thing and he goes through those phases where he pushes her and pulls her back and forth. She basically just learns how to navigate his mood swings where yeah. she's like, if he's going to have an episode where he like wants me to go away to go back to my parents or just say, all right, I'm going to go. And then, yeah, she just like follows his rules glumly. And like, then he feels bad and like calls her back in, uh, which was kind of darkly funny sometimes just because Jacob already doing the Elvis voice, like, I laughed once when he was like, I'm going to be a daddy. (laughs) When he finds out that she's pregnant. I thought that was funny. I don't even know if that was intentionally funny or not. But like, I laughed a little bit at the boys hanging around. And then I got a like, I don't want to say laughter, but like a like, I can't believe this reaction to the ways that he just like did not interact with her as a person. Like, when she's pregnant and he's like, maybe we should take some time apart. Like that kind of thing. Like I was like, what a scumbag. It is so like, yeah. Boneheaded, like teenage boy behavior from an adult man. Yeah. So again, as like a man, I probably <laughs> grew to uh, like him less after this movie. Again, I know this stuff was known, um, but just kind of seeing her side of it, like, man, what an awful person to be. Married to, married, yeah, yeah married or purchased to. from as a teenager, I guess. Yeah, it it, it just it, it did it did make me sad, and like you said, there's no big cathartic moment really at the end. But I, the subtlety of this was very refreshing after watching the nonstop craziness of Bos Lerman's Elvis. Well, if this made you think less of Elvis as like a person, did Bos Lerman's movie make you think more of him as a myth? Or do you feel like it was just things you already knew? The the parts of it that worked for me were when it's leaning into that sweaty Vegas end of his career Elvis myth. Yeah, in a way it did enhance like, yeah, that's what I love about Elvis. Yeah. You know, that final performance where he's on the piano and he's sweating profusely and he's just yeah. bellowing from his soul. Like that's the Elvis myth that I buy into. But then seeing him as like, an actual person and a partner who was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I, you know, it's, it, he's a complicated person, but an awful, awful partner. It was funny. Like there is some overlap in like dramatic scenes where you see Priscilla leaving him mm-hmm. in the Baz Luhrmann film. And it's like a much more melodramatically played exchange between the two of them, which is like, I don't care that you're cheating on me. I know that you cheat. It's just like, you're not involved in my life whatsoever. Mm. They have a big like blow up argument over it. We're like in the Sofia Coppola version. She's just so beaten down by life that like when she builds a life of her own outside of him, it actually feels kind of good. And it's not like them leaving is this big, like, Oh, what a tragedy that they couldn't make it work. It's like, thankfully she grew into her own person and found a way to like become herself. Obviously, you know, infidelity is bad, but when she does, they don't really go into it too much, but I know she's implicated. Yeah. That she had a fling with this like karate instructor. <laughs> Very funny. I, yeah. That <laughs> made me laugh too, but I was kind of rooting for him. And I was like, yeah, he's been screwing around on you this whole time. And you like this guy, have your little fling. I mean, I, I get the feeling they only had sex like for procreative reasons. Cause he didn't think of her as an adult. He thought of her as like a toy. So like, he was much more interested in having sex with everyone who wasn't her. <laughs> so Gosh, like so, for her so. to find someone who actually wanted to have sex with her outside the marriage, is like almost a triumph. <laughs> you so, know what I mean? That's so fucking shitty, dude. <laughs> <laughs> really shitty. I also want to talk about the two performances as Elvis. Cause I feel like these being treated as like award season, you know, FYC movies. Like I think another way that Coppola's movie is better is that like, Austin Butler as Elvis in the Boz Lerman film is so uncannily accurate to what Elvis looked and sounded like. It's really good. Like to the point where at the Oscars, he was still doing, he couldn't, she could, he couldn't shake it. He was in that character. <laughs> no. And he is uh, phenomenal in the Elvis movie. It's a great impersonation. Right. But it's not a nuanced perform. Like his performance in, uh, Sophia Coppola's film is much more nuanced. Yeah. You get a sense of like, oh, he's a real human being. Yeah, Jacob Elordi is more interpretive where it's not like he looks like Elvis necessarily. It's like he has the same magnetism and like girls watching Euphoria are attracted to him even though he is a dangerous bad boy and like toxic. Like, he still is someone that you want to, like, reach off. Like, I can fix him, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, like, the jailhouse rock James Dean delinquent. I can, like, bring him back from the bad side of town. And from the very beginning of Priscilla, like, when he's playing piano and he catches the drink that – it's, like, you could get it being a 14, 15-year-old girl looking at that and be like, oh, man. He's the coolest guy in the, the world. The coolest guy in the world. And then to see his behavior as a grown man – well, it's like he got famous as a teenager. And what, I guess one of the things that happens to any famous person that gets famous young is like you stop maturing because mm-hmm. there's no reason to mature. When he had a whole group of handlers yeah. around him that could bring him food and, you know. So I guess that's one of the ways she outgrows him is like in that first scene where she's watching him play piano, she's younger and looking up to him. By the end, when she moves on, she's like matured past him. He's still like a teenage boy living in decadence and she's like i'm gonna go build a life yeah their their last encounter where he's just like in this dark hotel room pilled out yeah and she's like i gotta do my own life and he desperately is like oh well maybe another time another place and it's like no dude no i'm (laughs) i'm moving on but I, i did yeah i 
doubt that he'll win an Oscar or anything yeah. like that, but I thought it was a much, it was a better performance. I agree that Austin Butler, a hundred percent grade A impersonation. Yeah. To the point where he cannot stop. <laughs> he has not erased it from his own persona yet. He's lost himself in the role. Uh, I like Jacob Elordi. I think he's like an interesting screen presence. He's trying to break away from being a teen heartthrob right now in the exact way that Elvis like struggled to uh-huh. do that. But uh, he does not have a megalomaniac Dutch man who cannot leave the country holding him back. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been insane if Tom Hanks was nominated for Best Supporting Actor? Oh, God. I don't want to... <laughs> What a strange universe we would live in. I mean, it wouldn't be that outside of the... It could have happened. Know, I mean, yeah. it's no different really from like Gary Oldman winning Oscars for yeah. his Churchill impersonation. Yeah, let's just put a bunch of makeup and right. just go ham. I'm trying to think of like what year this was. I think it was like Gary Oldman won for Churchill the same year that like Daniel Kaluuya was nominated for Get Out. Mm. And like there were a couple other performances that year where it's like, what are we doing here? The Academy yeah. is so weird. Yeah. I, Gary Oldman doesn't need any more Oscars. No, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> we enjoy watching the Oscars, but I don't think we like really put that much stock into who wins. I don't know. It's kind of fun to like cheer him on and talk about movies in like a competitive kind of way. My my when my dad was in town recently, we got into a debate or whatever you want to call it about Shakespeare in love. He was like, you know what the worst movie to ever win an Oscar is? Definitely Shakespeare in Love. No, wrong. And I was like, <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but I think it was fine. Yeah, like it's fine. It was pretty, you know, a crowd pleaser. He's like, no, over Saving Private Ryan. I'm like, I, I would know. rather rewatch Shakespeare in Love was, than Saving Private Ryan right now if I had a choice between the two of them. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, you have a very strong opinion for someone that watches like one movie a year. <laughs> <laughs> but it did make me want to rewatch Shakespeare in Love. I mean, this whole experience of like narrowing down every movie that comes out to like a few contenders because those are the people that like threw the right parties and like sent out the right merch to the Mm -hmm. right homes it's very weirdly artificial it's not any more legit or non-legitimate than our way of picking the best movies of the year because we're just like four to six people (laughs) voting but we're not being swooned by cocktail parties that's true by publicity people yeah. and all that the hollywood political machine and i don't think we would pick an actor based on like how well he nailed the accuracy of a role that's like a really weird way to watch movies to me especially it's like, biopics like what we just have to find the person that looks the most like them and acts the most like them and that's a good he's genetically superior than the other actors this year yeah <laughs> I, he I resembled elvis it's bizarre. But it, it is perfect for Baz Luhrmann's world yeah. of Elvis. Well, I guess that's the one good thing I could say about Elvis. Even though it's a movie I don't dislike, I think its most interesting thing is that it is following the traditional beats of like in a boring awards bait biopic, but it does take weird chances. It does go weird places. It takes very banal commercial imagery. Like even a lot of the different scene transitions are literal like postcards of Americana. Mm-hmm. And it's like not very interesting imagery really, but he does such strange stuff to it in the transitions, in the editing, in the like kind of propulsion of it all happening all at once. 
that it, it is kind of like thrilling, even though it's kind of boring in a, at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that was the two kind of moods I was jumping between. <laughs> but I don't, I'm not a fan of biopics at all. They're one of my least favorite genres. Because with most of these people, it's like we already know the beats of the story. I could just read Wikipedia. If yeah, and, and the Elvis movie, really, it's just like a brief Wikipedia article yeah. of what, you know. It doesn't really go in any depth or nuance, but at least if you're going to do it, you might as well just go for broke and, you know, like the whole production's on acid. Whereas Coppola is working a real story into her like pet themes and topics that she's already really like focused on in movies like Somewhere and Virgin Suicides and Marie Antoinette. Like she's, she really gets isolation and boredom as a cinematic topic more than like most directors Mm do she is one of my favorite like working directors every time i see a new movie from her i'm like oh yeah i love her like i forget between Mm. each picture and i take her for granted and like this was like a reminder that like she's like a real legitimate artist and her version of a biopic is basically the same as her telling any story like she like approaches it more as an artist than as like a commercial storyteller i guess and i do think it's challenging to make a movie about boredom that's not boring yeah whereas elvis is like kind of boring but it's throwing every trick in the book at you so you know that's why i prefer priscilla uh of the of these two films yeah both movies leave you kind of numb but in two different ways two totally different <laughs> ways right. you'll never know you'll never know what heaven means until you've been down to New Orleans. New Orleans. You ain't been living till you cut a leg Oh, with the black eyed baby by the old by you. You've never seen. You've never seen. Cupid Dark Queen. You've never seen those Cupid Dark Queens like they got them in New Orleans. New Orleans. Uh, ooh, they love you like uh, no one can ah! It makes you awful glad that you were born a man If, if you ain't been there Been there Man, you ain't been nowhere Nowhere The living's lazy and the loving's fine It's so fine If you feel low down Low down So help me, Hannah Hannah You should Oozy, oozy, Anna. So get the lead. Get the lead. Out of your jeans. Get the lead out of your jeans and hot put it down, hot put it down, and where? New Orleans.